Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The last radio hour of the week is the hour we give over to the Hillsdale Dialogues. Visit www.hugh4hillsdale.com for all of our Hillsdale Dialogues. And next week, we will return to the Lincoln-Douglas debates, number six in the series of Lincoln-Douglas debates that we have been discussing with Dr. Larry Arn, who's been away on vacation. But we thought we would step back this week and tell you a little bit about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which really precipitated the crisis which brought about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, because we've been assuming knowledge not in evidence, something that they tell us never to do in the courts. Dr. Kevin Porteous for the Hillsdale College, member of the faculty up there in the History Department, joins me. Dr. Porteous, welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks. It's good to be here. You know that that legal term, assuming evidence uh, or assuming proof not in evidence. We've been talking about the Kansas-Nebraska Act for uh, the last two months with Dr. Larry Arn, and we thought we'd better stop and tell people about it. How important is it? How much time do you spend on it in a normal class? Well, when I teach the uh, Lincoln course, it, it ends up dominating a good portion of, of the course. Or when I teach a course to our graduate students called Nationalism and Sectionalism, it, it uh, is really quite important because it is uh, so seminal in American political history. It's probably the most important piece of legislation in terms of its political consequences passed in the 19th century. It's monumental. Well, let's start right at the very basic. What year does it pass in and who's behind it? And let's get the general lay of the land here. Right. So the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes in uh, 1854. And the prime mover behind the act was the chairman of the Senate Committee on the Territories, an Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, who, of course, was was Lincoln's uh, opponent in, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And uh, Douglas had originally attempted to get a Nebraska bill passed in 1853, and it... it uh, failed to pass, but it only failed to pass because, frankly, the legislative session ran out of time. These were the days when Congress didn't meet very much. And so uh, he simply ran out of time before uh, the new president and the new Congress took office in March of 1853, and, and so it died. And the, the basic framework of the act, what's, what's really important is it, it took what was left of the Louisiana Purchase, that is to say, uh, present-day Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, and some points uh, west of that, but east of, of the Rocky Mountains. And so a fairly large uh, swath of territory divided it into two territories, Kansas and Nebraska, uh, the, the southern half of which is basically the present-day state of Kansas, and everything else it was the Nebraska Territory. And it said that, that the status of slavery in those territories would be determined according to the will of the people then residing in those territories. Now, had that, was that a great departure from what had happened previously? Uh, going back to the colonial days, not, not the recent history prior to 1854, but back when the charters were given or the, uh, the governors appointed? Well, going back as far as the revolutionary period, uh, in some cases, the, the colonial legislatures wanted to take action against slavery. The, the Virginia legislature, the Virginia House of Burgesses, prior, just prior to the revolution, passed a resolution outlawing the international slave trade, for instance. Uh, but in those days, prior to independence, anything passed by a colonial legislature was subject to a veto by the ministry in London, and they vetoed it. And that's why, if you look at the original draft of the Declaration, Jefferson's original draft, he uh, included a condemnation of the international slave trade and blamed the ministry in, in, in Britain for it, blamed the king for it. And the reason that, that he could justifiably blame the king was because they had prevented Virginia from outlawing the international slave trade. You know, one of the things we've been talking about with Dr. Arn for the first few weeks of the Lincoln-Douglas debate series 
is that from the time of the declaration right up through John Calhoun, there had been a common agreement among the intellectual elite of the time that slavery was evil and had to be done away with over time. But that changed and, and it begins to manifest itself legislatively in 1854. But how long did that intellectual agreement hold, Kevin Porteous? Well, basically uh, about as long as the founding generation, that is to say that the group of statesmen behind the Declaration, the Constitution, the early Congresses and so on, uh, remained alive. It's, I don't think it's too much of a coincidence, uh, for instance, that, that James Madison died in 1836. And the next year, on the floor of the Senate, in a debate, you have uh, John Calhoun, whom you mentioned, referring to slavery as a positive good and refusing to assert, as some other Southerners were still doing at that point, that slavery was a necessary evil. And of course, necessary evil is the line that people like Jefferson, Madison, Washington, etc., took with regard to slavery. So it took 18 years to go from necessary evil to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. What happens in those 18 years? It's 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 not a very long time. I think there's there's a number of things um, happening. One of which is the, the simple psychology. That is to say, Southerners grew very tired of beating themselves up publicly all the time, and that gets old. Uh, and you can imagine if you had to go around telling everybody what a horrible person you were all the time, uh, how that would begin to wear on you. The other the other thing to note is that slavery became increasingly entrenched after the the Constitution was established. Right. So we know about the cotton gin, and the cotton gin was was uh, uh, invented in about 1793. But it's also the case that um, cotton spread inland because of the development of or the, the advent of a new strain of cotton, which we would call upland or Mexican cotton, which required uh, far less growing time and was far more tolerant of abnormal weather conditions than the cotton that they were growing in the colonies prior to independence, which was really only growable along the Carolina and Georgia coasts and sea islands. So it became much more entrenched and profitable than it had in the past. And so, so King in, Cotton, that's what they called it, right? Right, and that, that began to develop, but it, it, it developed as a result of a, a kind of combination of, of, uh, combination of factors. And I, I don't think you can simply point to the cotton gin and say, okay, well, that's everything. But that, w- that was important, and there were other, uh, th- there were other factors involved that are, uh, that, that are worth pointing out. Uh, the other thing to note is that the South had, for a variety of reasons, from the formation of the Constitution up until almost the outbreak of the Civil War, especially given their minority, st- increasingly minority status with, within the country, they had a very dominant position within the federal government. Because they had two senators per state. They also, when I looked at the majorities behind the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act, I was struck by how easily it passed the House. Right. And, and I think that what, what we have to remember about that is that, yes, it had a pro-Southern element and Southerners supported it. But this was also the era, the 19th century, when party affiliation mattered a great deal. And this was a Democratic Party measure. And so large numbers of Northern Democrats did what you did in the party system in those days. And that is when the party leadership says, this is how this is the party's position. That's how you vote. And that's you were selected to maintain the principles of that Democratic or Whig or Republican parties. And, you know, you had patronage appointments that people that depended on you to continue voting that way and so on. And so that was an incredibly powerful pull. Large numbers of northern Democrats voted for it. And the Democrats in the northern part of the United States suffered a massive defeat in 1854 from which they never really recovered. Okay, so what was the precipitating event for actually introducing Kansas-Nebraska? Well, 
the country at the time uh, was mad, at least the, the political leadership was in both parties, for a transcontinental railroad. And despite the fact that the official position of the Democratic Party was uh, no federal support or or assistance to internal improvements, that is, say, infrastructure projects, they were largely on board with the transcontinental railroad. And so Douglas, who was the chairman of the Senate Committee in the Territories at the time, as I, as, as I mentioned, uh, wanted to get a railroad through a more northerly route. And he wanted to do so both for his state, but also for himself. He'd been buying up a fairly substantial amount of land along a proposed northern route with a terminus in Chicago. This is entirely, we would consider this a massive scandal today, but it was was maybe not reputable, but certainly not criminal uh, in the 19th century. But you couldn't run that railroad until you organized the territory, because until you organized the territory, you didn't have law and order, and more fundamentally, you couldn't survey and plat the land, which means you had no clear titles to anything. So what do you mean by organize the territory, Kevin Porteous? Uh, form a territorial government. So the federal government would appoint a governor who would call for elections for a territorial legislature, and that legislature would meet and begin to develop local laws for the governance of that territory with, with a view towards ultimately uh, drafting or uh, drafting a constitution or creating a, a calling for a convention to draft a constitution that would, would lead to statehood. You know, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people remember the series Deadwood. And that was about living in, in unorganized territory, trying to get it organized and then eventually trying to make it into a state, right? That's what you wanted. You want organized territory, then you wanted to become a state because that brought you, what, legitimacy? Well, you, you were... Um, you had representation in Congress. You had a say over the larger policies that uh, the larger policies that govern you over federal laws. And you you had you were able to elect your own governor. You were able to form your own constitution. This was this was a time when state constitutions actually mattered because state the, the state government and the state constitutions were the primary vehicles for securing your natural rights. We didn't look to the federal government for that. So you wanted a state government so that you had that that measure of sovereignty. When we come back, Dr. Kevin Porteous of Hillsdale College continues to walk us through the history leading up to the Kansas-Nebraska Act and that which happened thereafter, which resulted in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which resulted in Abraham Lincoln's presidency, which resulted in the Union being saved. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you so much for listening to Hugh Hewitt Show. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of each week or almost every week, where we talk with one or more members of the faculty of Hillsdale College hillsdale.edu h-i-l-l-s-d-a-l-e hillsdale.edu for all of the college's many online offerings you can sign up there as well for imprimus the newsletter of the college and you can go to hugh for hillsdale.com and find nearly three years worth of hillsdale dialogues back to homer and occasionally we stop and do a history lesson like we are today with dr kevin porteous of the faculty of hillsdale college and the graduate school of statesmanship there uh, where we try and at least provide you with a skeleton of the history that led between the great debates and the great philosophical arguments. The last many weeks I've been talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and they're debating whether the union and whether or not we should have uh, sovereignty in the states on the question of slavery. And that really arose in the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So, Dr. Porteous, let's go back to 1854. The railroads are coming uh, Judge Douglas, then Senator Douglas, is trying to get territories organized, get the railroad built, and he brings up the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and, and it repeals the Missouri Compromise. You're going to have to tell people what it does, what, what the Missouri Compromise is. Yeah, it's—well, it's, um, the Missouri Compromise was the first major 
uh, the, the result of the first major slavery crisis in the United States. In 1819, the uh, Missouri uh, petitioned for statehood, and it was the first part of the Louisiana Purchase to want to come in as a state where there wasn't already some understanding about the status of slavery in that area. When Louisiana itself became a state, it was understood that there were slaves in the area from the previous uh, previous sovereignty, sovereigns and uh, and so on, and so slavery would not be tampered with in that state. But Missouri was unclear; it was undecided. There was there were a small number of slaves, but it wasn't it wasn't the same. And Missouri petitioned for admission as a slave state, and so this this triggered uh, an enormous crisis. Uh, and I, I think people, even people who, who who know something about this, don't always appreciate. Uh, how close the country was to coming apart during the 1819-1820 crisis. Now, in the last segment, you said, though, Madison and the other framers are still around and exerting a calming influence. What did they think about that at that time? Right. Madison himself was uh, Madison himself was in retirement. Jefferson has a great letter that he wrote uh, during the Missouri crisis. And uh, on the one hand, he says, well, in famous the famous saying of Jefferson, we have the wolf by the ears, and we neither safely hold him nor safely let him go. On the other hand, he, he condemns uh, the Americans of that time as unworthy heirs of the founding and says, look, you people are going to squander everything that we worked for and, and for what? For slavery. Uh, and so he's, he's intensely critical of that. So, so they come to – they almost come to blows. The framers are old and they're in their rocking chairs. How is uh, – disunion averted in 1819, 1820? Well, the, the solution that eventually obtains is that Missouri will be admitted as a slave state. To compensate, the District of Maine will be broken off from Massachusetts and admitted as a free state. As for the rest of the Louisiana Purchase, uh, there's a line drawn, 36 degrees, 30 minutes north latitude. It, it basically runs the uh, due west from the southern boundary line of Missouri going across, if that, if that makes sense, across to the, the western edge of the Louisiana Purchase. And so everything south of that, basically present-day Arkansas and Oklahoma, uh, the Compromise made no ruling with regard to slavery, and that was widely understood to mean that Arkansas and Oklahoma would eventually become slave states. Stop, stop there. So, so no word about it, but everyone had a wink and a nod agreement? Right, and then... Um, the federal government would not interfere with slavery in Arkansas, what, were, what, what are now Arkansas and Oklahoma, but everything north of that line, uh, which, is the, which was the greater part of that territory, so Iowa, Minnesota, Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, large parts of Montana, Colorado, that would be closed to slavery in perpetuity. You see, that's, that's most of the deal. Right. That, that keeps the framers' vision intact. It might grow a little bit into Oklahoma, but it will uh, eventually run into its own natural collapse. Right. And so the idea was that the, the principle that obtained from the founding up until 1854, the, the middle of the 1850s, was that we are uh, – liberty is our basic principle and we make exceptions out of necessity. Uh, and so what you saw in the 1850s between the Kansas-Nebraska Act and then the, the Dred Scott decision three years later was that first turned into liberty and slavery are equal to one another in the Kansas-Nebraska Act – and then the Dred Scott decision turns that directly on its head and says, no, we're a slave nation that makes exceptions to these cranks in the North that for some reason believe in universal liberty. Boy, Kevin Porteous, I have never heard it described that way before, but that perfectly sums it up. For, so I'll go back through it again. The original assumption 
the change and then the evolution from the change. Right. The original assumption was, of course, what you found in the Declaration of Independence, that we are a free people. We are a nation that believes in, in what Lincoln calls in 1860, 1861, the principle of liberty to all. That's the basic principle. With the Kansas-Nebraska Act, liberty and slavery are made moral equivalents to one another. And, and Lincoln was recognized this right away. Uh, or at least fairly quickly, and, and it becomes a centerpiece of his politics. Three years after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, when the Dred Scott decision is announced, uh, the, the, the court rules that Congress cannot prohibit slavery in the territories in any way, shape, or form. And so what you have at that point, then, is a nation whose basic principle is slavery, uh, but the nation makes some concessions to, to like I said, these, these cranks in the North. Yeah, these, these people in the North who, for some reason, believe that freedom is, is a universal good. So where is the uh, Abraham Lincoln at this point? Where, what, what, during this debate, where is he? During the 1854 debate. Right. He's, actually, he's a private citizen at this point. Uh, he had served his one term in Congress, left in 1849, and had gone into something like political retirement, at least at the federal level. He, was, he, he didn't hold office, and he was practicing law privately, but he was very active in Illinois Whig politics. The Whig Party was still the second party at, at this point uh, up through the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and, and was, was recognized within Illinois as a leading Whig, but was not... Uh, giving speeches on a regular basis uh, and so on. It was and, really... Go ahead, I'm sorry. And can, and can you pause for a minute? People have heard about going the way of the Whig Party for years, decades. And I'll bet you not one in three of my audience knows what a Whig is, and, and none of the Steelers fans do. So would you... You know, we had the Federalists and the Hamiltonians, and they went away. They were destroyed by the Jeffersonians who became the Democrats. But who are the Whigs? Right. So so the, the Whig Party emerges during... Uh, basically during the presidency of, of Andrew Jackson... And that they take their name from the English Whigs who saw themselves as opponents of monarchical power. This is one of the dangers of trying to equate, well, you know, today's Democrats are the heirs of the Jacksonians or the Republicans or whatever, because the issues don't always line up. That, right. is, to, that is to say, the Whigs at that time opposed a strong presidency and favored congressional supremacy. Uh, and, and, but they also had a, a, an economic development package that went along with that. Uh, things like uh, a, t a protective tariff, support for what we now today call infrastructure projects, they called internal improvements, uh, a national bank system of the kind that uh, similar to what Alexander Hamilton developed. They, they defended that and tried to uh, perpetuate it during, during Jackson's presidency. And, and they really, for 20 years from the 1830s up until Kansas-Nebraska, were the second major party in the United States. And then poof, they were gone. We'll talk about why with Kevin Porteous. Member of the faculty, Dr. Porteous is at Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues available at hugh4hillsdale.com. Don't go anywhere, America. The country is, and it's going towards civil war. Stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Hillsdale Dialogue, last radio hour of the week. www.hillsdale.edu brings you everything from the college, including the applications you ought to be busily filling out right now, you uh, seniors in high school. Dr. Porteous, do you teach any undergrads? I do, as a matter of fact. Most of, I, most of my classes are undergraduate. I probably teach one graduate course a year. And do, do the Hillsdale freshmen and sophomores get a good skeleton of American history? So many people lack it. And that's why we're doing today's hour, just to bring them up to these Lincoln-Douglas debates. Yeah, I, th I think they do. We, uh, the, the history department uh, offers their course American Heritage, which is, of course, required for everybody. And it's based 
primarily in primary source documents where you actually read texts. And then uh, I'm in the politics department and my uh, my department offers our course U.S. Constitution. And most of us organize it in a somewhat chronological fashion and, and deal with, with themes as we go. And so we try and go through these major issues. And I, for one, try really hard to connect a lot of this stuff to – uh, to what's going on today. So we actually end the class not at the present, uh, but with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Uh, How interesting. Me, with the, uh, I'm sorry, with the uh, derived from the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the House Divided speech. How interesting. Was, now, what is the clerical error that, that brings about so much debate over the Kansas-Nebraska Act? Okay, so when, when Douglas initially brought the Kansas-Nebraska Act forward in January of 1854, now this is the second time around, uh, not the 1853 version, but in 1854, he brings it forward, and it doesn't say anything about repealing the Missouri Compromise. Well, that's unsatisfactory to the Southern senators whose support he's going to need in order to get the bill passed. People from places like South Carolina and Virginia and so on, they want something more explicit. They want a price. It's, okay, fine, Senator Douglas, you want a Northern Railroad route and you want to organize a territory for for that purpose, um, we'll help you with that, but you're going to have to help us with something. Um, and so, you know, you've opened the door for this, and, and now we, uh, we're going to try and take advantage of it. Who is president? Franklin Pierce? Yes. And tell us about Pierce. Uh, Pierce was, I was going to say, a Mexican War hero, but that's, I think, inaccurate. Um, Pierce gets overshadowed as far as um, sort of weak presidents go, I think, by the fact that his successor was James Buchanan. But, uh, well, Pierce had a habit, uh, the historians note, Pierce had a habit of, of going along with, with whatever he heard last. So whoever came to him last and talked to him about something, he was persuaded by that and would make it his, his position. So when Douglas and a group of Southern senators went to the White House to talk to Pierce about the Kansas-Nebraska Act and to get his support for the bill, they made him put that support in writing because they knew what he was like. Uh, and, and so they, they uh, made sure to, huh. to lock him down on the, what, what we now know is the final version of the, of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Okay, so what happens after it gets unveiled? Uh, both, to both of these two parties, Whigs versus Democrats at this point, what happens or what's the act impact like a meteor on both parties? Right, no, and this, is, this I think is why in terms of political impact, this is the most significant piece of legislation of the 19th century, and, and it may be the most significant piece of legislation in, in American history. Uh, the, the two parties react very differently. I, I mentioned that the northern wing of the Democratic Party, at least in Congress, almost ceased to exist. And so what I mean by that is that three quarters of, of Democrats from free states in the House of Representatives lost their reelection bids in the next election. They were, they were literally wiped off the map. Um, and so what that meant was up until the war, and in many ways beyond, the Democratic Party was now in the thrall of its southern section. The southern section, that's where the power was in the Democratic Party. So to a greater degree than ever before, because southern dominance of the Democratic Party had been a fact since it was the Jeffersonian Republicans, but to an even greater degree than ever before, the southern Democrats, the southern interests dominated the Democratic Party. I got I to pause and ask. When uh, when modern political wipeouts occur, 2006, the Democrats wipe out the Republicans it's because Iraq has gone badly. 2010, the Republicans wipe out the Democrats because nobody likes Obamacare in the north. Uh, what was it about the Kansas, Nebraska Act that so deeply offended? Right. Uh, this idea of popular sovereignty or local self-control had been 
part of the discussion since about 1848. Uh, and But before the Kansas-Nebraska Act, it was really unclear whether popular sovereignty let the people in these territories decide for themselves, whether that was a pro-Northern or a pro-Southern position. And people who promoted popular sovereignty left it vague enough that they could play it both ways on purpose. And so they would say, to, they, they would talk out of both sides of their mouths on this issue, and Douglas was, was no exception. What the Kansas-Nebraska Act did was to authoritatively make it a Southern issue uh, or, or a pro-Southern position, that it's something that benefited the South. And that killed the Democrats in the North because they didn't want to benefit the Southern Democrats. I'll be right back, America. Dr. Kevin Porteous is my guest on this edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned. 44 minutes after the hour, America 2 here with Dr. Kevin Porteous. He is the uh, member of the politics department at Hillsdale College. Hillsdale.edu for all of the Hillsdale dialogues, of which this is one. Go to you for Hillsdale.com. Dr. Porteous, we went to break. We explained how the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which gave uh, the populations of sovereign states their authority to declare themselves free or slave states, destroyed the Democrats in the North. But why didn't the Whigs benefit from it? Well, they, they got wiped out, too. Right. Well, the Whigs got wiped out in an entirely different way. I mean, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, in giving power to the territories, states always had the power to decide slavery for themselves, but giving power to the people in the territories to decide it for themselves, to decide the slavery issue for themselves, um, wrecked the the Whig party. And I think, I think a lot of that has to do with the uh, – the peculiar character of the Whig Party. The, the Whigs were very much concerned with improvement. And I mentioned internal improvement or in, infrastructure, but they were also concerned with personal improvement, moral improvement, moral reform, social reform. You were much like more likely to find the, the, the social crusaders, whether it was for education or mental health or, or anything else, um, in the Whig Party. That's, that's, that's where you found them. And so they tended to be more... Um, they tended to be more moralistic. And so it was, a, it was an enormous um, crisis of conscience um, f- uh, for them. And they, they simply proved very quickly uh, unable to handle the strain. I mean, in 1852, they were the second party. They fielded a candidate. Uh, they, they lost fairly badly in the Electoral College, but the popular vote wasn't that bad. By 1856, uh, they were a rump, and commentators at the time noted that they were uh, notable mostly for the number of uh, uh, men in their convention with very white hair. <laughs> uh, that 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 uh, the the party had almost ceased to exist, and the only way they were able to field a national candidate was by making common cause with part of the Know Nothing Party in in eighteen fifty six. In other words, the parties of the eighteen fifties were uh, that went into the eighteen fifties. The Democrats and the Whigs were built to a large extent on playing the ostrich with regard to the slavery question. That is to say, we're, we're going to try and suppress the, the, this question because it's dynamite. When the dynamite finally exploded, the Whigs simply weren't able to deal with it. They're, the two wings of their party, the North and South, weren't able to come, either come to any kind of agreement or have one side triumph over the other. All right, so how did it then, okay, it destroys the Whigs, it destroys the Democrats in the North. Why does it give birth to the Republicans? And, and we know, Fremont, et cetera, where do they come from for people who are not familiar with this? Right, no, the, the Republican Party does not simply emerge. And there are even multiple claimants in terms of towns that uh, assert are the birthplace of the Republican Party. Jackson, Michigan is one. Ripon, Wisconsin is another, claiming to be the, the, the birthplace of the Republican Party. 
What you had essentially in the aftermath of Kansas and Nebraska was was the emergence, the kind of spontaneous emergence of what were, what were thought of as anti-Nebraska groups. And these were very broad-based. There were anti-Nebraska Democrats. So Douglas's co-senator from Illinois, the other Illinois senator after 1854, was a former Democrat who opposed the Nebraska Act named Lyman Trumbull. Uh, but it was also Northern Whigs, uh, referred to as conscience Whigs. It was abolitionists, people like Garrett Smith and Frederick Douglass. It was free soilers, that is to say people who wanted to keep slavery out of the West, not because they liked equality in the Declaration of Independence, but because they simply wanted to, to keep African-Americans out altogether, is oh. ex exclusion. Uh, or know-nothings, that is to say people who are anti-slavery, but also anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic, and it's 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 an it's an incredibly diverse coalition, and it it uh, it reminds one in many ways, I think, of of the Republican Party today, which is to say, they're anti-modern. The Republicans today are anti-modern state vaguely, but what are their principles beyond that? If you get a group of prominent Republicans together in a room, what do they really believe in in common, other than we don't like what the other guys are doing? Yeah, free enterprise. Now, now, come on, Kevin. We get we could come up with a few things, but. Nevertheless, this this early Republican Party has quite the mix in it, and but they all are agreed that Kansas must not be a slave state, right? Right. That that's correct. And and large numbers of Northerners begin organizing themselves uh, to to go to Kansas. So you have groups like the New England Immigrant Aid Society, which was a kind of a. Uh, uh, philanthropic organization dedicated towards funding free state migrants to go out to Kansas and, and turn the place into a slave state, or excuse me, into a free state. Now, now that, I've, I've wanted people to move to Colorado, Virginia, and Ohio for years who are Republicans for that very purpose. But this was really kind of sacrificial because Kansas is not, not a happy place to be now. I'm sorry, Jayhawks. But I mean, even then, it's a tough place to be, and the Missourians are coming over and shooting you. Yeah, it's... it's uh, um it, it's it's a little nasty on both sides. I mean, we know about a little bit about the border ruffians. That is to say, the the Missourians who would cross over to vote and and uh, cause trouble and head back to Missouri. Uh, some of them who stuck around, the free staters would rather pejoratively refer to them as pukes. Um, the uh, free staters, for their part, on the other hand, it was the free staters, or one free stater in particular, who perpetrated the uh, Pottawatomie massacre. John Brown. John Brown. Um, uh, Henry Ward Beecher's church in Brooklyn sent crates of what people referred to as uh, Beecher's Bibles to free staters. Beecher's Bibles were rifles yep. uh, to go to go enforce God's law on the plains of Kansas. And so it was now the, the bloodshed was not on the scale of the Civil War, but it, w it was enough that bleeding Kansas is an accurate description. Well, what what kind of, of scale are we talking about? It's been years since I read my last, uh, the great one-volume history of the Civil War, which begins with bleeding Kansas. Uh, uh, I can't remember what the name of it is, but how many people are we talking about right. getting killed? I, I think probably on the order of, of dozens. I mean, the, the, Pottawatomie was a big deal, and it was five. Um, but... Even some of the, some of the other events, like the sack of Lawrence, and th these are not high casualty events. And th there's a significant amount of sort of sort of cross current in there because there there were things that free staters and slave staters had in common. That is to say, they wanted to make a buck in Kansas. And one of the interesting things about this is is that once the federal government is able to stabilize the situation in Kansas, uh, that is to say, get an authoritative governor in place and uh, calm things down. Um, the, the acquisitive part takes over in, for the most part on both sides. Now, there are still incidents and there are flare-ups during the war itself, but, but we're not talking about 
we're not talking about anything like a civil war battle or even a small scale version of a civil war battle. And the book I'm thinking of called Battle Cry of Freedom. And when we come yep. back, we're going to talk about the uh, um, the conclusion of this, what happened in Kansas and what came forward. James McPherson, the man who wrote it. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back uh, with the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. 55 minutes after the hour, America, Dr. Kevin Porteous is my guest from Hillsdale College. And I want to thank you, Dr. Porteous, for joining us and, and sort of laying out what precipitated the great debate. But I want you to, in three minutes, take us from the slaughter on a small scale in Kansas to Dred Scott and then the great debates that followed. Right. While all of this is taking place, uh, Kansas, Nebraska and bleeding Kansas and everything that follows, uh, Dred Scott's case is, is working its way through the courts. And, and Dred Scott initially filed for his freedom, or at least his supporters filed for his freedom in the state courts in Missouri in 1846. So it was it was a case that was 11 years in the making by the wow. time it was it was done. He exhausted his options at the state court level where he'd had mixed results, uh, but ultimately the highest court in Missouri sided against him. Uh, but then there was an, uh, an opening when... Uh, his owner moved to New York and left him in Missouri. And so he and his supporters sued for his freedom in the federal courts on on the diverse citizenship clause. Here we have a citizen of New York and a citizen of Missouri, and there's a dispute between them. And so um, the case makes its way up to um, the federal courts. The lower federal courts decide to simply uphold the Missouri court decision, say, well, no, that's that's their decision and we're not we're not going to mess with it. They make a narrow decision. Ultimately, and at fairly short notice, and it's a very interesting but unfortunately lengthy story, uh, the Supreme Court decides that they want to try and settle the slavery issue once for all. And it's a, it's a court, by the way, with a Southern majority, five are, out of Are they five. moved by the violence in Kansas? Is that one of the reasons that they're doing this? I, I think in part. I think they're moved in, also in part by, uh, particularly Tawney, the Chief Justice, is moved by animosity towards abolitionists. Yeah. Um, Tawney himself in his early days espoused the principles of the Declaration. He emancipated his own slaves, uh, but had become a, a, a very hardened sectionalist over time. And I think he blamed the abolitionists for most of the problems in the country. And so he and, and the Southern majority on the court were ultimately determined to render a, a uh, pro-slavery decision that was supposedly going to be a final settlement on the slavery question. And it shows you the problem with trying to get final settlements on any issue through the judiciary. And I got to ask you, because we have a minute left. Judge Douglas, when he introduces the Kansas-Missouri Compromise, uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1853 and then again in 1854, does he have any idea the match he's striking? I don't think so. And and I think that uh, the most generous reading of Douglas is, is probably the right one. Douglas wanted to preserve the union above all else. And I think that he thought that the slavery issue was not worth blowing up the nation over, frankly. He thought this was something that if we can find a way to preserve the peace. The other thing is that I think ultimately in his way, again, the most generous reading probably being the right one, uh, in his way, he was anti-slavery. He was convinced, uh, or at least publicly convinced, that slavery would not go into these territories in numbers sufficient to make them slave states. But of course, the, the basic problem there is why not? I mean, any, anything that human beings can do, any labor that human beings do, they can be made to do as slaves. Yeah. That's, wow. Kevin Porteous, you have built, you built the bridge back to debate number six next week with Dr. Larry Arn. Thank you for doing so. Hillsdale.edu for everything the college offers and Hugh for Hillsdale for all of the Hillsdale dialogues. Congressman John Campbell in for me on Monday. Thanks for listening, America, to the Hugh Hewitt Show.